Everybody. Welcome to Church History for Chumps. This is John Simon and my good friend, Thomas Duell. What up? Thomas Thomas likes to build up the anticipation for before he says things sometimes, but that's just... Uh, <laughs> keep, we, we like keeping the suspense going. But uh, we, are, we are joined by uh, a really, really, really special guest today. Uh, this is Ben Lansing, who uh, that name may not strike any bells for you if you're not in the uh, the Virginia area. But if you're familiar with a uh, really, really cool Instagram page we've been following, both Thomas and I have been following for probably a couple years now uh, called Our Church Speaks, which does uh, hand-drawn, or I guess digitally hand-drawn um, portraits of key church history figures for from, uh, you know, I think I've seen, I think I just saw Jan Hus the other, the other day, but you'll also do some of the older church fathers. And, you know, we've been a big fan of your work and, and right now I'm a big fan of the, of the cool shirt that you're wearing. So I'm just all kinds of excited. So, mm-hmm. uh, so Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, John Thomas. This is a real treat. Yeah. yeah, it's our honor, man. So Thomas, I think it was your idea way back in the day to uh, to try to bring try to bring Ben on. What do you? What is it that kind of drew you to uh, to kind of appreciate his work back in the day? Well, uh, I don't remember how I originally found your Instagram, but it just seemed like. Uh, I was aware of it, and then all of a sudden I was really enjoying it, and it was developing my own understanding of church history, and uh, I figured out you were an Anglican, and I have a, I have a, 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 an affinity for my Anglican brothers and sisters, and so I was just really digging uh, your work, and uh, church history is something that it seems like a lot of people are really interested in, but they don't really know how to learn about it. Mm, and your, right. pa- your page was making it very accessible for people, which is a big uh, part of why we created Church History for Chumps. And so it seemed like it'd be fun to have a conversation at some point. Yeah, yeah. I love the podcast. I feel like we have a very similar mission. <laughs> I, I just, you know, taking something that is perceived as uh, inaccessible and just... Uh, you know, making it accessible, Absolutely. not even making, not even making it accessible, just letting it be accessible. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. 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 Well, I remember, uh, one of the first lectures on church history I ever heard at the seminary that both Thomas and I are in, uh, the same similar seminary up in Phoenix was, um, our professor said essentially something like, the problem with church history and the way that it's taught is it tends to be like, uh, you know, here's the apostles, here's like a couple generations of their friends, and then like catapults forward to the Reformation. And yeah. a lot of times what is presented as church history is really just the history of your singular tradition or denomination. But it's really mm-hmm. divorced from hundreds of years of the church. And I think for me, where that tension, like like Thomas said, really made me want to do something like church history for chumps was uh, it wasn't just history that we felt disconnected from. It's like the spirit of God has been active and moving for 
for 2000 years. And yet we only kind of recognize it in a small handful of movements and figures. And there is something that just didn't sit right with me there. And, uh, and so, yeah, you know, we're, we're doing so much talking already, Ben, why don't you, why don't you tell us how you got into church history? What kind of sparked that fire for you? Oh man. Well, um, I guess to kick that off, I think we are in a unique period of church history right now where I don't know about you guys. I'm, I'm sure this is the case um, in Arizona, but here in Virginia, there's just a lot of very sincere people who are in a process that for lack of a better term, we've called deconstructing. Mm. People are asking very good and serious questions about their faith and in many cases, it's leaving them feeling uh, kind of disoriented, like not really knowing what end is up. Some of them have had really hard experiences, very real and bad experiences within uh, the church or maybe just at from coming from another Christian. And so often as they're processing these questions, um, at least many friends that I have, people I know in my past, uh, I just kept noticing they're asking church history questions mm. as they're trying to make sense of things. And they don't know that they're church history questions, but they really are questions like how can the Christian faith be true? If there's so many divisions in the church, if there's so many denominations um, and when Christians have been at each other's throats at so many different points in, in church history, um, a lot of the questions are uh, based on maybe just uh, one particular thing that they may have heard at one point and um, it's stuck in their mind and they, they don't even know how to begin the research to know who to trust when talking about it. So anyway, that's, that's kind of the story in many ways of, of my growing up. Um, I grew up in Baptist charismatic non-denom circles yeah. and my parents, um, they just really had a rough time in a lot of different churches. And, um, you know, this is late eighties, nineties, evangelical America, um, in a lot of different churches there. And this is, you know, it's, as you tell your story, as anybody tells your story, it's, it's hard to tell it without it making it sound like there are just bad, Bad things, and that's why we went from one stage to the next. All along the story, there are good and beautiful things where God's hand is evident. But there were a number of different situations in my parents, um, as my parents raised us, where there was corruption, there were controlling pastors, there was just really bad um, pastoral care that was given, all sorts of things. And and I think we all. Um, from one degree or another, if we've been around the church long enough, we've seen things that weren't perfect. Mm. Um, but after a while, um, my parents were more and more just kind of driven to just the idea that what if we just did church at home? They were getting more and more disillusioned with just attending church altogether. And so I'm in my mid teens at this point. And, um, my parents start just doing house church and they're really driven by this idea of what if we just did church the way that Christians did it in the new Testament. Yeah. So we use the Bible as our only guidebook. And that seems great. You know, especially if you're in an evangelical mindset, like, yes, let's just use the Bible and then everything will be clear and we'll just wipe away 
all the tradition, all the barnacles of history that have built up over the way that we've been reading the Bible. I just try to do it objectively the way that early church did it. Um, but here's the trouble. We all have a lens in which we read scripture. <laughs> and so when we try to remove ourselves from institutions, we quickly become the institution. <laughs> mm. And that's, that's the, that's yeah. the trouble is I, I was listening to your podcast about um, the witch trials and man, like I, I, there's so many Puritans. I love Richard Sibbs, um, Thomas Watson, John Owen, um, great guys, Richard Baxter, my goodness. And, and William Gurnall, uh, man, I love that guy. But these Puritans who went to New England, they had this idea that they were going to really purify um, essentially what was the Anglican faith at the time. And mm-hmm. they were just going to give it a hard reboot and get it right this time. But then they became the institutionalized church. And there were so many problems that came up in New England, America. They couldn't escape the fact that they are um, just in need of, uh, you know, reform as anyone else. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's kind of a, a, a aside, but in our house church, um, which began to be a family of quite a few people, fam- uh, a group of multiple families, um, we began to develop patterns and ways of doing things. And usually what we do is we would have a meal together and then we would just kind of talk about what our testimonies were from our reading of the scripture that week. There were a lot of really sweet things about it. Um, and we really were trying to just do what we saw in scripture. So we'd get to a difficult passage in scripture, like, oh, head coverings, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And we'd all wrestle through it together. Like, what do we think? And some people would come on one side of it and some people would come to the other side and we'd be like, well, we're really going to try to do the authentic thing. And and then we finally all decide, okay, well, we don't need to do head coverings. And, you know, that was the line that that particular group fell on. Um, but... Um, most of the time, the discussions devolved in these early years of the house church into just kind of anxious talk about the state of the world and how broken institutions are. Because that's the thing that kind of bound everybody together is they were all people who were kind of expats from organized denominational life. Mm-hmm. We were kind of the New England Puritans. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, witch trials hadn't started, but, you know, we were... <laughs> no one anyway. was hung in your house church. <laughs> no, no one was hung in the house church. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, but anyway, so we, we were asking questions, and then we came across um, this particular book, and I'm just, I see God's hand. He really was, I think, preventing us from maybe going too far in this direction of just sort of an echo chamber. Mm. Um, an echo chamber of uh, exegesis. Um, but th- this book suggested that house churches, um, one, that they should try to live the way that the New Testament did things. And one thing it mentions, which is something that for some reason we were just overlooking, is how important the Lord's Supper was mm. to the gathering of the saints. We weren't doing that. We were just opening our Bibles and just kind of 
sharing our thoughts. And that was kind of the culmination of things. So anyway, we, we said, okay, yes, let's do it. Um, so every week we started to have some bread and some, I think it was grape juice, if I'm going to be honest, um, <laughs> but some grape juice. And um, I mean, we were so anti-institution still at this point, we had no one in our group that we would even call a pastor, like, <laughs> because everybody in this group was just kind of like in an egalitarian mindset of like, everybody's on the same level here. So anyway, a lot that I look back on and I'm like, oh, that wasn't the way to do church. But the amazing thing about God is he doesn't wait until we get all of our ducks in a row mm. and that we've checked every box. Like God is so gracious. He, he comes to us wherever we are and he met us there in that very imperfect situation. And he came in and, and there was just this transformation in the group as we started to not only partake in the word, but the table on a regular basis. Mm. Um, it became part of our, just if not our weekly, at least our monthly um, interactions. And um, one thing that was very evident to everybody was a lot of this anxious talk about the state of the world. It began to grow less and less. Mm -hmm. And there began to just be more of a unity of God's people around the things that God cared about, the things that were more of God's concern, which is how are we caring for each other? There was a desire to serve each other more that didn't exist as much before. Um, one thing I'm really grateful to my parents about is they made it so clear that God is a God who has just infinite grace. And, um, and so that was never a concern for me as in my own heart, I was grappling with how, how does church work? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I had gotten to the point before this that I had kind of decided about age 17 that I was definitely going to be a Christian because I love Jesus, but I wasn't going to be involved in the church once I'd left this house church thing because it just wasn't working. Yeah. Uh, it's just gonna be me and my Bible and I'd witnessed people when I hung out with them and that would be church. But once really the Lord's Supper became a regular part of my life, um, something really changed and I realized the gathering of the saints, the, the scripture is not joking when it says, do not, do not neglect the gathering of the saints. And God gave us not a whole lot of instructions about how to do church, but the ones he gave us are really important. Mm. Having elders and deacons, um, you know, man, not, not too many details on that, but definitely it's there for a reason. And yet we still didn't want to have uh, anyone named as a pastor, a leader. And that began to really kind of weigh on me because it's like, well, God hasn't told us much about how to do church, but the few things he's told us, uh, we're not doing them. And yet our whole thing is we're trying to be a New Testament style church. But it it um, there are pastoral responsibilities in a church, whether people name it or not. You know, somebody has to do certain things. And it just became more and more of a desire for me to just be in a church environment where people 
called things for what they are. You know, I wasn't craving anything too organized, but literally like joining a non-denominational church seemed like a really big deal, like a huge change in my whole philosophy. Um, as I'm trying to piece these questions together, I'm starting to ask church history questions. And one of the biggest ones was, well, if we're trying to live like the New Testament church, how much do we know about the church in the first century? And maybe this wasn't like a mind-blowing experience for you guys, but growing up, I had no idea that you could read documents written by the disciples of the apostles. Mm, that's huge. That's wild. That's crazy. Like, uh, for me, that blew my mind. I could read stuff by, like, Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp. These guys hung out <laughs> with, with, like, Clement hung out with John, with uh, Peter, mm. and Ignatius and Polycarp hung out with John. Yeah. Um, so, no, their writings are not uh, inspired like scripture. They don't have the, you know, they're not, they're not there for us to use in the way that we use scripture but so much insight into how did, you know, three dudes understand the apostles, you know, <laughs> you read their stuff and it's just so good. It's just so practical. I remember and, uh, yeah. the first, first time I read first and second uh, Clement, I was just like, okay, that was as easy to read as any other new Testament epistle. <laughs> yes. I think that Christians should be reading these not necessarily instead of anything written in the 20th and 21st century, but at a bare minimum alongside. Mm. It's just so good. So Yeah, so good. I, I don't know if you guys have read um, uh, On the Incarnation by Athanasius, mm -hmm. um, but there's usually a preface that they include with it that C.S. Lewis wrote. That's a that's a really good preface. Oh, man. The, the preface of all prefaces. That is well said. The preface of all prefaces that, you know, even though I didn't know about the early church fathers um, at a young age, I was reading C.S. Lewis uh, pretty early in my life and came across that essay around the same time. And um, you guys are aware of it, but just to summarize it, one of the big thoughts that stuck in my mind is he said, every age has its own blind spots. And depend, it doesn't matter who you are living in, and I'll, I'll apply it to our day. It doesn't matter who you are living in the 21st century. No matter what political party you vote for, no matter what state you live in, no matter what country you live in, um, we all share a lot of the same experiences. Um, mm -hmm. An example, we all have iPhones or smartphones. Those things are influencing the way we process information. They influence just the way that we are. They influence our attention spans. Um, so we have blind spots, every one of us. And I can read something by somebody who's not writing inspired documents, but maybe they lived in the fourth century, maybe Gregory of Nyssa or something. And um, I may read something by him that I'm like, I don't know he didn't have an iPhone. He's got different blind spots than me. I can yeah. even read, you know, I can read writings by George Whitfield who had some major issues that I have problems with. Um, not seeing the, the major um, red flag 
of slavery, just not having that ability. So there's a blind spot that he has that I hopefully don't have in the 21st century. And yet he also can see certain things that in my age, I may have blind spots. Mm. So C.S. Lewis's advice is, you know, for every, every modern book you read, you know, read an older book, right? or at least every two modern books, so that you're not in, in a way, in your own echo chamber, an echo chamber of just authors <laughs> who are influenced so by all the things of our own day. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, I kind of took that to heart around that time. And I was just starting to read because I really wanted to know at this point, if I'm going to be involved in the church, I don't want to be involved in just a cultural institution. I want to be in um, involved in something that is far deeper, far bigger, and really that can can handle storms as they hit. Mm. Um, and I just felt like the, the house church we were in as sweet as it was. And then there were some really sweet things that I take with me from then just authentic, good things, but it was really too rooted in our own interpretations of scripture in our own little echo chamber. Um, and I'm seeing how in the early church, Ignatius, Polycarp, Clement, they're describing this network of churches that existed where they were holding each other accountable and they had the ability to speak into each other's, into each other's lives. Um, so, I mean, I, I barely knew what Anglican was at that point, but really I started to get my mind around this idea of like, oh, essentially I was imagining something that I now know is called Episcopal polity where you have like a pastor who's the pastor of the pastors and the pastors can check in with other pastors mm-hmm. and be held accountable. Um, but anyway, so long story you were, short, you were pre Episcopal at this point. I was pre, pre Anglican. Yes. Pre Anglican. <laughs> um, I, um, where was I? Oh yeah. I, I was leading Bible studies at this point. Um, was really getting into the word and and just developing a hunger for God's word that was not of myself. Um, and I began to really decide, okay, now is the time. I'm going to, as hard as it was, because it was my whole network of church, you know, relationship. But I left the house church uh, in my mid-20s and um, joined a non-denominational church. And uh, it's the first time I think anybody in my family had been an actual member of a, you know, organized church in ages. It was like the most sketch thing anybody in the family. <laughs> scandal. Uh, scandal. <laughs> um, but it was such, that was such a sweet church. I got really involved there. But uh, I got married while I was at that church. Um, met my wife. We were going there. And uh, when we decided to get married, actually we decided um, we want we want our vows not to be written by ourselves. We want to uh, go with the traditional vows. But what are the traditional vows? We didn't know. So we start doing some research. Is this how it all starts? Is that the, is that the funnel? Yeah, yeah wow. the funnel. Okay. <laughs> I find <laughs> out, oh, the traditional started. vows, like anything traditional, essentially, if you're a Protestant, is from the Book of Common Prayer. Like, mm-hmm. just is. Like, Puritans were against wedding rings. So why do we all, like, if we're married, why do we have wedding rings? Well, it's part of the traditional service. Oh, you got the 
2019 Book uh, yeah. of Common Prayer. There, nice. Yeah, dude. The nice version too. The nice one. Yep. <laughs> Floppy covers. Oh yeah, nice. love it. Um. So anyway, we we bought a Book of Common Prayer. Me and my wife, and we had our um. Our our sweet pastor from our church uh, just agreed to uh, use the Book of Common Prayer, and it. I started to do the the morning and evening prayer from the book of common prayer soon after because like once i was married i was like i do not know how to do life Mm. so i'll stick with the same book that got us through the wedding service and just keep using this (laughs) so okay it's morning time i'll pray the morning prayers and then evening i'll do the evening prayers that's kind of how it started and began just more and more to have those prayers immerse my imagination and drive me deeper in love with church history because all those prayers in there um a lot of them are written in the reformation some of them go way way back beyond the reformation um so my my spiritual life and the way i approached scripture and the way i read scripture was being shaped essentially by the by church history Mm. and um and so now church history wasn't just intellectual knowledge, but it was something that was, that was discipling me mm. in some really big ways. Yeah. Um, and that was huge. And so anyway, we, um, we found out me and my wife that this Anglican church in Northern Virginia was planting a church in, uh, in Richmond. And, uh, and I, you know, I apologize. I'm going into more detail um, than you guys probably were asking about because you just no, asked how'd you get into this church is, history. Exactly. But really, my my story with church history is like it's so tied in with the journey God has had us on that I can't really talk about it without like <laughs> dragging in the whole the whole situation. So, for context, when when were you married? How long is this? Uh, Twenty fourteen. Okay. when we got married. So cool. I think it was 2015. We found out that this Anglican church was about to be planted within the year in yeah. Richmond. And I just, I was in the process of listening to like all these different types of podcasts, Catholic podcasts, Orthodox, Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, because now I'm in this mode where I've accepted, I'm going to join a actual institutional church and it's not with these rose-colored glasses of like oh well everything's going to be okay now because i'm in it it's more of an acceptance that okay yes the church is messed up but i've now removed myself from this and just seen how i become the institution when i'm removed from it i'm messed up so what better place to be than with other messed up people as we seek to serve the lord together Mm. and so i'm just fascinated by all these different ways that different types of churches over the centuries have been essentially messed up together and creating a tradition out of it in many ways so i'm just learning to love all these denominations not necessarily agree with them but you can love and and appreciate something without saying i want to you know sign up for it Mm -hmm. um and really i think one thing I was finding so encouraging was how much in common there was that Mm. there was this love of Jesus that was just so often evident. And in the ways that they were messed up, it was often very similar ways, Mm -hmm. Uh, a love of, um, you know, uh, 
just box checking, looking a particular way, performing a particular way, not looking like the other guys. Like that's a huge <laughs> problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, when I found out about this Anglican church though, through a podcast, um, I was like, I talked to my wife about it. I said, I, I cannot get this out of my mind. I cannot shake. I think God wants us to really pay attention to this. And at first we just thought it was that God wanted us to um, welcome this church into town. So we, you know, um, befriended the pastor and the church planning team, but we were so happy at the non-denominational church we were at. Like I, we couldn't fathom leaving that church. It was, they were so dear to us at that point too. Um, and then after six months or so, we couldn't shake it. So we talked to our pastors and I really think like if you're in a healthy church um, where you trust your pastors, you feel like you can talk to them and you start to feel like maybe God's calling you on to another place. It's just such a good idea to involve trusted people in that process um, instead of just <laughs> drop and leave. So I just, I, I didn't know how they'd respond, but I t- talked to my pastors about it. I said, I know this sounds wild because the Anglican thing was not as big then as, as it is now. Like you hear quite a few people now are attending Anglican churches, but then it was like saying, I'm going to become a Moravian. It's like, what is, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> as, as two pastors though, we can't tell you how much we appreciate the fact that you did that though, because the, uh, the drop and leave or just the, I don't know how to have this conversation. Like I've actually had some really beautifully like, crafted conversations with members who are just like, I hate that. I feel like I need to go, but I'd like to oh, talk yeah. about it. And I'm like, yeah, dude, let's talk. Like, I'm not trying to restrict something that the God might be calling you to. So, uh, yes. yes. Shout out to that. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear you say that. Cause yeah, that's it. I, I hope it happens mm-hmm. more often. Um, but we, you know, and I'm, guilty of this just as much as anybody, but we get into such a consumerist mentality if we're at a church and then we look over and, oh, that looks more interesting. The instinct is just to say, oh, I'm going now. Yeah. Like, wait Trading a second. Like your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You just, you just switch. Mm-hmm. Um, but if this is the Lord's doing, God rarely just has his solo prophet in the wilderness without any um, fellowship with others. I mean, he wants us to involve what we think we're hearing God say. Um, bring other people into that. And that's just something I've learned through that process. And and we did. We talked to the pastors and they were so supportive. And after praying with us for a while, a few weeks, they they came back and they said, you know, we we really think God is calling you to join this other church plant. And they ended up having, and I mean, this, this non-denom church, super casual, you know, pastors and jeans. I mean, it was, it was very comfortable for me. It was what felt right, you know? And then here comes this, this new pastor from the Anglican church and he's invited to stand in front of the church and he's wearing his collar and a black suit. I'm not, you know, not kidding. And right. he looks so out of place considering the environment. But he just comes in and our pastors invited him to explain what an Anglican church was. Wow. 
And then they had the people who were going to join this um, this new church plant um, come up. They laid hands on um, their members, you know, their 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 loved ones that they were sending on to this other tradition, and just blessed and commissioned them to go and continue the work of the gospel. And I can't tell you, like that was such a a point of God just smiling and all of those years of grappling with what is the church, um, where am I supposed to be in it? All the church history questions, all the thoughts and doubts I had about Christians, not, you know, uh, reflecting Christ necessarily in church history. I'm seeing here though, church, blessing another church that's not in their tradition or denomination and having an open hand with their own members. Mm. And that was huge for me. It was very healing. It kind of, it healed a lot of the kind of cynicism I had dealt with for so long. Um, Yeah. So we've been involved at, um, it's a redeemer Anglican church in Richmond now for six, seven years. Um, And uh, in the process of, becoming a deacon there now oh dude so, yeah yeah that's um, amazing man that's so cool what i yeah. i loved about your story ben was that um church history had such a multifaceted like um connection point for you because in some ways church history was kind of building the bridge that led you into the institution that you kind of had a lot of hesitation towards joining like it was something yes. kind of like it was something that discipled you in a lot of ways and kind of like building your your affections in the book of common prayer and then one thing you mentioned when you when you just start, started talking was um it's it's like a missional thing like it's a way that we get to respond to our our deconstructing friends so i loved i loved every minute of that answer by the way like that was yeah. I, I loved I loved how personal it was. I appreciate I really appreciate you sharing your story. But um but yeah, I mean and that's and I think you captured in, in your own words just what is such a captivating thing to me about um I mean church history sounds like a topic you study in school. Like I wish there were a better phrase for it, but it, it really is like the history of God, like the history of God and his people with all the triumphs and all the foibles at the same time like um just being able to experience that and experience it recognizing our blind spots but also being able to see the world through people's eyes who have very different blind spots to us but also have vantage points to other ways of seeing the world that can be really enriching to us like that's just that's just so cool like you know so the reason we did the Desert Fathers as our first episode was because they were kind of my gateway drug into uh, into church history. Because for me, you know, I had a pretty like narrow um, kind of theological view of the church. I was definitely one of those like hop right from Augustine to John Calvin when <laughs> and there's all this gray area where it's like something was happening, but nothing good, nothing good. Um, and so, uh, and so I was just really interested in like uncanny stuff. And I've suddenly read about these dudes who like, looked like they were monks in like Shaolin, but they were monks <laughs> in Egypt. Yeah. 
and they were very connected to the early church and they were like theologians in their own right they were serving the community in their own right but they were just it was just started with one dude who was like you know what this city i think is evil i'm gonna go wrestle with some demons in the desert and live by myself so i can speak to god and i was like that's just so weird like that's strange to me but if we believe in the spirit of God, which gives me like this common DNA as this person, then I'm like, well, then hold on a second. Like, what what could I possibly learn, you know, 1600 years after this guy lived? It has to be something because they're still talking about this guy and the people that he influenced. So that led into that. And then it's just been this gradual just, you know, it's like a it's just this gradual unearthing of like so many phenomenally interesting stories. Some of them really beautiful, some of them really tragic, but just being in like the, the richness of all of this and how it can be really shaping and formative to us uh, is incredible. So yeah. Yeah. That was great. That was really well well said. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's this process of being, comforted while being made uncomfortable at the same time that's that's the best way i can describe it and yeah yeah i think uh at least for me growing up i i when i encountered anything that uh, struck me as you know you know catholic which was a scary word you know as a you know, <laughs> as a kid uh you know if it looked different than my experience my knee-jerk reaction would be to say oh well that's salvation by works though you know the the desert fathers were out in the desert because they believed in salvation by works and then you know stop thinking about it move on read some martin luther or whatever (laughs) but what i found is they approach the idea of grace from a different angle perhaps yeah but man did they believe in grace (laughs) their Mm -hmm. desperate need for grace oh yeah and in some ways like hearing them articulate it different than i would helps me better understand just the infinite grace of god because the thing was and we don't have to get hung up on the desert fathers but you know oh we could thing (laughs) i wouldn't mind yeah well it's like um you know we talked uh Oh, shoot. We didn't talk about this. This was the episode that might get canned. I was thinking this was the Salem Witch Trials episode. I was oh, no. But, uh, yeah, we had one where my you know, laptop was like roasting and I, I we lost a lot of the audio. So oh, shoot. we might have to re-record it. But we recorded an episode on uh, Julian of Norwich. Uh, oh, yeah. Which took place during the bubonic plague and how um, a lot of the... Um, even what we today refer to as Catholic guilt, which I think a lot of reformed dudes and Presbyterians inherited as well, is like um, a lot of it came about because there were so many Christians who experienced this like generation ending plague that killed like 40% of the population and in like really torturous, slow, miserable ways that a lot of people were just like, God is angry at us. Like they really, um, they really internalize this idea of our sinfulness, our guilt is something that will be reflected in our circumstances. And like, then you look at the desert fathers and it's like, well, these dudes were nearly a millennia before this culture shaping event happened. So the way that they process, like you said, grace and guilt, like you wouldn't see them, have the same response to sinfulness as you'd see in like Martin Luther expressing his sinfulness, but they're also very aware that they're sinners. And 
they don't necessarily see grace in a way that's just limited to absolution and forgiveness. They see grace as like, if you're living in the desert, every meal and every drink of water you have is grace. Like every day yeah. experience is grace. It's not just this ethereal acknowledgement of divine forgiveness. It's like, no, every day that we're experiencing the goodness and love of God is grace. Like it's all around us. And like that, I think that even in the tradition that I was in, learning to only see grace as forgiveness, but not as something tangible in day-to-day life, like that, that would have been a blind spot for me. And that would have been a blind spot that the Desert Fathers were able to kind of kind of alert me to, which is which is cool, you know? Yeah, that's that's so beautiful. Yeah, that, there's this quote by Richard Sibbs, the Puritan. He mm-hmm. says, there's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Mm. And that's such a profound thought. Like I, I could think about that for the rest of my life and never fully appreciate just those few words. Yeah. And for the longest time I was like, well, thank goodness for the reformation that we were able to finally understand those kind of things. Then I realized Sibs was lifting that from a church father like that. I can't remember which <laughs> one it was, but almost the exact same words. So you see just recapitulations mm-hmm. and they, they are, they're turning it, they're examining it in their different days and times. And what you're talking about that understanding the church context, where they're at, that Julian of Norwich was writing during the the black death yeah. really changes the way you read her and why she says certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think on that context understanding it and doing so much of what you guys do in in your in your episodes you're explaining so much of the world that these these people live in that even helps i think shed light on a lot of the seeming conflicts that come between christians where it seems like they completely disagree Mm. um it helps me understand that there is something here that is deeper that maybe you know if I'll, I'll give you an example. The one of the ecumenical councils, which is the global councils of the early church, um, the last one actually, which is called uh, Nicaea II. I think it met in 787, and it was there that they discussed what role do images play in worship in the Christian life. Um, this is an important discussion for me as an artist because i really like before i started to do our church speaks i was really wondering like what exactly what is my theology of art you know because some of these puritans that i read that i admire and love they would not be for me drawing pictures of saints they would be totally against it Mm -hmm. um so what do i do with that like, how do I just ignore that fact? And I'm the kind of person that can't ignore that fact. I have to create an answer for why why I believe what I believe. So in um, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, Nicaea II, they came down hard in favor of images, um, saying that because Christ was an incarnate human, it's actually uh, heretical not to portray Christ mm. as a human being. Because mm. if you never see a picture of Jesus portrayed, then he sort of just becomes a spiritual abstraction. Mm. So that was their reasoning. 
that yes, the second commandment says don't make images of God, but we can make images of what God has made visible. So don't make images of the invisible God, but the visible God, which, you know, we have in Christ, that's something that we actually should make images of. So anyway, that's interesting. But then by the time of the Reformation, you've got people going around like tearing down artwork and destroying it. Mm-hmm. So I can see that as just a conflict in the church. I can see that as just, oh, Christians just can't agree. But what was the historical context of the Reformation? Mm. You know, by this point, you have in Western Europe, multiple centuries later, almost, you know, 800 years later, you have Christians who are living in a church that for a, quite a while has just been experiencing trauma, like the Black Death, the Hundred Years' War, the um, corruption that was in the Western church at the time. Mm-hmm. People across Europe were experiencing, like they would never have used this term, but we use it now, it's spiritual trauma. Yeah, And one thing that they were clinging to in the midst of all this uncertainty and fear and panic and even anger was they were looking for something that they could cling to and put their hope in, and they were misdirecting it into images. It was just so widespread at that point that it was no longer just a teaching tool, but it was being abused. Mm. Um, And a lot of these corruptions, like even, you know, the Roman Catholic Church has since addressed and mm-hmm. um, corrected. But at the time, those things hadn't happened yet. So anyway, while I I don't agree with what the, the uh, many of the Protestants did with images, I can really get into their heads in the time, in the historical context, and say, yeah, maybe at the time, images were not um, helping people to best understand the gospel. Mm-hmm. But in our day and time, we are so surrounded by images. We are just awash in images with our phones, with our technology. We need images that can disciple us, that can speak truth. Um, Yeah, because you're going to be discipled by it either way. You're going to be discipled by something. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And what you uh, said, Ben, reminded me of the Protestants and and the monasteries too, right? Like yeah. they uh, they had a pretty strong distaste for the monks, but also the monasteries at that time were probably in one of their like least healthy states in terms of like how they were actually devoting themselves to the community and even to like good theology. So you know, Martin Luther saw that and he's like, yeah, there's not going to be any monks in my tradition. But yep. now the, there's lots of, there's several wings of the Protestant church that are looking back fondly, maybe not necessarily on the monastic school of thought, but a lot of the key themes of monasticism. Like it seems like everywhere you go, someone's doing a conference on solitude and silence and prayer and stuff like that, which is all what, what the monastic life was built upon. Um, so I can, yeah, I agree. I can look back and see this is how in this context it was being abused, but also I can see beyond that context and maybe see a redeemable idea too. Yes. Yes. I, th- I think sometimes really good things have to go through a period of discernment to decide, have we made the good thing, the ultimate thing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, and so, yeah, in a way, in a mysterious way, and I don't, I still have so many questions about church history, but in so many ways, I wonder if God is working through the church and just sifting us and we're kind of just chewing on certain concepts century after century so that God is ultimately the ultimate thing. Yeah. And we don't put anything before him, but yeah. yet can still keep the good things, <laughs> you uh, know, because God wants well, good for us. We see, we see God uh, instituting culture, even at the very beginning. And, and he has this, this goal for culture and he's giving mandates that are going to bring about culture. And uh, it made me think what you were, when you were telling that last story, it made me think of, I know you're familiar with Leslie Newbegin. I think you did yeah. a piece on him. Um, I'm not sure if this is a quote that can be found or if it's just something that I've heard secondhand that he said, but I, <clears throat> apparently Newbegin one time said that he, he stood up, I think it was in the, like a conference setting. He was just like, I wish someone had told me back in seminary that all of church history comes from culture. Like there's, there's cultural reasons for all of this. Mm. Like these councils didn't just happen in a vacuum and these, these, uh, wars didn't happen in a vacuum. They were, they all have massive amounts of culture behind it. And one thing that I like about, uh, your, even your project, Archer Speaks is the power that that image has to convey even some of that culture just through like, the way they're dressed or the uh, maybe the other elements that you include in the, in the artwork mm-hmm. to communicate something about that person. Like that stuff is huge. It just is not communicated. If history is only about a date and event. Yeah. 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 yeah thanks for that. I'm, I'm grateful you noticed that. I, one thing that was really important to me when I started this project and it was, you know, everybody had their, covid project they were thinking and tinkering mm-hmm. with and this one was mine it kind of got got yours is better up. than a lot of other people i'll just say <laughs> that right now top 10 yeah i <laughs> uh, appreciate it um but i was just thinking about you know how how can i try at least and, and there's so many times i probably get it totally wrong but how can i try to portray these people as they may have actually looked while also honoring the fact that there is a artistic tradition of portraying them like there's funny things about religious art that have been passed down through the centuries and they just kind of make me think maybe this is true because everybody's drawn say the apostle paul as a bald guy right everybody um it's just like well i'm definitely drawing the apostle paul as a bald guy because i'm not (laughs) you know so whenever i whenever i'm about to draw someone i try to First of all, find out what people group are they from? Sure. What, um, yeah. h- how do we think maybe people dressed from that time period? Because we're just used to thinking of, say, church fathers dressed like 12th century Western Europeans. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, in, in my opinion, I, I think a lot of the times that people drew them that way in, in, the medieval years was just that they didn't get out much. They didn't know how people dressed. So they drew the way that, you know, people around them looked. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of left this impression that, you know, Augustine dressed like he was from 12th, 13th century. It's probably from, 
England or France. No, he's a North African Berber. Um, and so trying to, to portray the portrait that way, I actually will try to find a photo of someone from that people group and then base the portrait on that person. If we don't have like an actual portrait, um, so from some of the more ancient people. Sure. Sure. Um, now, yeah. uh, Ben, I wanted, I've been wanting to ask you this for a while and we, we don't have to dwell here for a while if it's, if it's, uh, if it's negative for you, but I remember you did a portrait of, I think it was John Calvin a while back and I looked <laughs> at the comments section and people were just like the heretic. And I, <laughs> I, I thought it was so funny because people are like, this isn't a Catholic page. And it's like, yeah, it's not a Catholic page. People don't yeah. really to understand Anglicans sometimes. Uh, so I'm just really curious, like what, what portrait have you like maybe gotten the most flack for? Oh, well, first I really feel for these people because I don't love some of the people I draw. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe that takes explanation because uh, when I started this project, I kind of saw a potential snag, um, which is if I'm just choosing my favorites, mm -hmm. then I'm going to have to be answering infinite questions about if you chose this guy, why not this guy? Oh, um, yeah. So, I wanted it to be rooted in the liturgical tradition that had meant so much to me for so many years. So everybody who is portrayed uh, in our church speaks is someone that is uh, officially recognized in the Anglican calendar of saints. Okay. Um, so I don't know how much you know about the Anglican world, but there's different subdivisions within the Anglican communion. Mm -hmm. There's the Church of England, there's the Church of Uganda, there's the Anglican Church in North America, lots of different things. Yeah. They all have a calendar, and a lot of their calendars will reflect what country they come from. Or there'll be particular saints from their their region. So I just started buying as many books of common prayer editions from all over the world as I could find, and started to research the people and, you know just found them all fascinating. So I think maybe let's see the one that has generated the most controversy. Um, certainly John Calvin, he takes people by surprise. Yeah. Um, it's funny. A lot of the people who, who take issue with John Calvin, um, attribute the writings of Calvinists who lived, hundreds of years after him exactly. to Calvin. Yeah. Yeah. We deal um, with this every day in the report. <laughs> it's, yes. it's such a, it's such a blast. Well, I, I think it's, I think it's fun because um, I mean, I remember, and this was such a random occurrence, but I just, uh, this was before the podcast started. Um, and I just wanted to talk to everybody of every different tradition in our city. Cause I just, I just wanted, I just wanted to have that exposure. Yeah. So there's a, there's an Orthodox church in our city and, uh, and, uh, I went to visit them for a service. Very interesting service. The divine liturgy is a beautiful thing. I didn't have any problem with it. Um, and they were like, you know, Hey, if you ever want to sit down with father, so-and-so, he'd be happy to have you. And I'd be like, shoot, I'm not going to turn that down. That's awesome. And I'll, and I'll be honest, I was planting seeds for a future podcast episode, but you know, that's okay. I told him so it wasn't. Okay. Yeah. 
so I hung out with him and uh and I I really wanted it to just be about like hey you know I'm an outsider I'm curious about orthodoxy I think it's you guys have um a really interesting vantage point on the faith because of your um kind of unbrokenness kind of like the east the eastern church has always kind of been its own thing for a really long time even before right. the schism happened in 1054 and they've always really been about like we we are we are not like you crazy westerners like we're doing <laughs> we're doing it right and so i was i was curious about that but dude was just like so uh so you're a pastor so uh what do you what do you think about all this? And I was like, ah, you know, I'm like kind of Dutch Reformed. And he's like, I don't know Dutch Reformed, but I know Reformed. So is that like like a Calvinist Reformed? And I'm like, yeah. and I was like, ah, oh, he threw out the word. And he's like, yeah, so, you know, I, you guys just believe like, you know, uh, whatever you, you just believe something once and then you just go to heaven, right? Because you can never lose your salvation. And I was like, that's not exactly what we believe. Like, I would say that's pretty far actually from what we believe. But, you know, I got to have a really good conversation he was a super super sweet guy i actually really enjoyed talking to him but you know that c word really it throws up people's alarms where they just hear every every negative stereotype they've ever heard about a calvinist or a five pointer or whatever and then we get to have a conversation and be like no no, no we we think god still likes us we don't think god hates us we promise <laughs> uh, but, yeah, yeah what a difference it would be if we engaged with other denominations with one just a good sense of humor and then two just a desire not to not to assume that that the other denomination is like their worst exponents but more like the best and most admirable like um you know what if when engaging with um before engaging with say i mean i'll pick a denomination that's not mine not to pick on anybody in particular but with a methodist Mm -hmm. if i found the most admirable writings by methodists and gained just a deep appreciation for how true the things are that some methodists have said instead of just go into it finding the worst examples of methodists (laughs) and saying you guys are like that and that definitely Calvinists get that that treatment quite a bit. Sure. Um and I I also see Calvinists giving that kind of treatment. So yeah, you know, it's just that's kind of a and uh, I mean I, I Anglicans I, do it too. I used to be a card carrying online Calvinist. So I uh you know, there's there's gonna be some extra years in purgatory for me if that's <laughs> <laughs> not if you ask an Anglican. if uh, if the lord is just i might be good but you know i'm keeping my options open i don't want to be surprised (laughs) but so so ben what's one of your not well i don't know if you have an all-time favorite saint that you've you've done tell us but just one of your favorites if it's hard to pick yeah oh man that's hard um let me think well, I love the way that uh, that uh, Mary of Egypt turned out. Mm. Man, like that was one portrait I drew, and I was like, "Whoa, who drew this?" I <laughs> That's <cool>. love this. <laughs> I rarely so cool. think that about some. Usually, an artist sees everything in a in a drawing that didn't go the way that she or he planned, and right. like that's what I like. Most of my stuff, I look at it and I'm like, "Oh." 
I'm going to redo that one next year. Mm, um, I want to say it's actually your portrait of Mary of Egypt that led me to looking up, and she has such a fantastic story. So yeah, yeah I, I think I, you know, I try to save all the all the little posts that I see online that I like, and I I would not be surprised if I saved it. I'm even going to go back and look. I well, yeah, I've got that, it right here. Oh, that's great. That was fast, quick on the draw. Man, lightning! Oh, it's rendering well. <laughs> Yeah, so I the way I did her portrait, um, and I do this for a lot of the Egyptian um, early church saints, is uh, I will find a portrait of someone who had their portrait put on a uh, a mummy sarcophagus. <laughs> so I don't know mm. if you've seen these, but yeah, in like first century, second century in in Egypt. People stopped um, putting like the whole mask on the sarcophagus, and they just start putting, or I don't know if you call it a sarcophagus, but you know the 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 mummy. They would stop putting the whole mask on the mummy, and they would start to just paint a beautiful portrait. And the way they painted the portraits are just very lifelike. It's amazing. Like, so you really are seeing the way people looked who lived in you know Greek egypt in the first second century so cool so i'm like i'm not gonna try to guess things like hairstyle skin color uh clothing all these things i'm just going to lift it right from these these portraits so mary's an example that's actually based on a painting that was done you know almost two thousand years ago yeah so yeah that is super neat yeah, that's yeah. so fun to know the background to how like you developed out that that piece. Yeah. Wow, I hope that makes people who are listening go look it up right now. Yeah, I'm, you know, a lot. I get feedback from people who are surprised that maybe I've drawn um, Anthony of Egypt differently than they had always seen him portrayed in artwork, mm-hmm. different than they had imagined. Um, but what I'm trying to do is just base it on like as much as we possibly know about, you know, I'm saying as much as we possibly, as much as I can figure out from my computer (laughs) here in Richmond, Virginia. He's just coming through libraries (laughs) as much as possible. I'm no Indiana Jones, but I, I, you know, (laughs) from like if I through Google. So Um, then who's your, uh, who's your dream? If I could have a beer with blank from church history, just to, uh, just to chat, just to gleam. Uh, yeah, who comes to the top of your head? Who's there? Great question. Jesus off the table, of course. Jesus off the table. <laughs> Let me think about that. Sure. Um, oh, I'll probably think of a better answer um, <laughs> later tonight. I'll be like, oh, but, <laughs> you know, I... I'm fascinated by just everyone who lived during the reign of Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. Um, what a what a terrible ruler! I mean, I just like <laughs> what a nightmare. I mean, talk about like it would, everybody who lived during that time had to be on their tiptoes because mm-hmm. you say the wrong thing at the wrong time and. <laughs> You're done. Doesn't matter whether you're Roman Catholic, Protestant, whatever. 
Um, and I just find it fascinating the the calculated way that people said exactly what they believed, but no more than necessary, <laughs> mm-hmm. just to survive. Right. I'd love to sit down with you know Thomas Cranmer, Thomas More, um, Lady Jane Grey, mm-hmm. uh, just any of those folks, and uh, William Tyndale, mm-hmm. and just say like, let's you know off the record. It's just us having a beer. Like, right. how are you doing? What What are you actually thinking about? You know, how how are you navigating these times? Um, because they certainly, <laughs> they had a difficult time of it. But then also there's just oh, having a beer. Martin Luther, of course, he's, yeah. you know, <laughs> he's like the beer guy. Yeah. The prince of beer. <laughs> and then C.S. Lewis, of course. I mean, goodness. Oh, yeah. uh, just because he... I've read his stuff more than anybody else's. Um, Mm -hmm, I feel like I've already had a beer with him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had this thought um, and it was kind of a kind of nonsensical, but it was like, you know, we, we believe in the new heavens and a new earth. Uh, That's really what we're kind of anchoring our faith on. And I'm like, man, like, I wonder, like, there's something so interesting, like, cause when we think of death, or martyrdom i know at least for me like there's a lot of trepidation there but then i think like i I wonder if there's like a martyr club where they're just (laughs) yeah no i mean it was pretty bad burned at the stake this guy here drawn and quartered like you know what if like even martyrdom has this experience of like you know camaraderie where they're like oh yeah i mean i actually thought it was going to be way more painful turns out i was out in like a minute uh but just like yeah so interesting so i i love the idea that um i don't know when the cloud of witnesses really precipitates into uh into the new Jerusalem that we can that we can have some dope conversations i want to i want to check in at the martyrs club maybe not as a card carrying member but just to hear some stories i don't know yeah yeah Yeah, that sounds good to me <laughs> yeah, dude, I, I've got to put a highlighter on the cloud of witnesses precipitating into the New Jerusalem. That's an awesome image right there. I'm gonna just That's give you a virtual charge. dap up for that one. Right now. <laughs> yeah, you can put that in any sermon you want. That's all yours, bro. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, Ben, we've uh, we've taken up a good a good amount of time. This is already probably going to be a a record as far as our our podcast. Was there anything else you want to chat about? Oh man. Well, I, I think one thing I will just add at the end, um, sure. I'd, we never really got into the, the, well, we, we got into some of it, but the art portion of my life is this whole other track that was running parallel with my grappling with church history. Okay. Um, just developing that career. There's a lot of, you know, dead ends and confusion in making a career and doing art. Um, but at this point I have, and it was, it was during, I think it was during COVID. I was just really praying a lot about Lord, you have two clear themes in my life right now. One is you've put a love for art and drawing and you've really opened some doors there for me. And the other one is this love of church history and you've opened some doors for me there too. But I just, I had this burden of how do I combine these things together? just didn't know. And I was just praying about Lord, give me direction. Yeah. And, um, and so the idea for doing our church speaks came 
after actually taking it to the Lord in prayer. Cause it was beginning to be like a, something bothering me. Like how, how do I put these together? Mm. Um, so yeah, if I, I guess just, I've been so encouraged that God's been with me through every step of the way. And he just really loves when we talk to him and mm. ask him questions about things that don't make sense in life and just lift it up to him. He's just so faithful to guide and to, uh, direct our imaginations and the things we're interested in. I mean, it could be anything. It doesn't have to be art or church history. It could be any number of things, Absolutely. but there's purpose in things that have captivated our imagination and God can use so many different interests for kingdom work and building his kingdom here on earth. He needs, he needs people. He has people in every dimension of life. So Whatever it is that has captivated your imagination, like if you're not quite sure how to use it, just lift it up in prayer. Mm. God has a plan. That's such good advice. What what I love about our church speaks and, um, and, and even what I've really loved about me and Tommy being able to do this podcast is these are creative outlets. And one thing I think we don't meditate on enough is just how creative God is. Like, yeah, like worship and the way that we express and live out just like that heart of being a child of God, like should be a creative process for us. And I think a lot of people feel kind of boxed in because they're like, well, if I want to do something with this day off from work I have, I better put my nose in a theological book or I better go feed some homeless people because there's no way I can express a heart of worship through just being creative. And it's like, no, I mean, like, I think God oriented gospel hope saturated creativity is something the world really needs a lot more of. And it's something that we're, we're just barely getting started at with our podcast, which has been such a pleasure. But I also think it's something that you're, you're totally doing with your platform too, Ben. So we're really grateful for that. Oh yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. I hope this is just the beginning of uh long partnership in church history education. Yeah. Uh, same. Too. Yeah, I was telling uh, I was telling Thomas um, Ben when I saw on your website that you occasionally will lead some church history courses at your church. I was like, dang. Well, if Ben if Ben likes us enough, we can do another episode in the future where we just let him pick a topic and then we just we just chat. About it. If, if that's <laughs> yeah. if that's up your alley, we just we go for four hours. Yeah, <laughs> and we can. That do sounds very show. great. Uh, I would love that. That would be a lot of fun. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, dude, Ben, thank you again so much. We uh, we know it's a few hours past. Uh, you know, it's a little a little bit later than us because you're on the East Coast. So thanks for thanks for staying up and and thanks for chatting with us, dude. Your your story's really incredible. And like I said, we're both really really grateful that your artwork gives us uh, a nice little worshipful pause whenever we're doom scrolling. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we pray that you uh, continue to, to do something life-giving that's also very worshipful. So thanks for that, man. Oh, that's I, I, I so appreciate that, guys. And, and thanks for all you do. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, great. 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 All right, team. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today or tonight. Uh, this has been Church History for Chumps, and we will catch you later. Bye.